All right, everybody. Let's let's be real. I have been behind the last couple weeks. I haven't even posted a podcast, and some of you are like, hey, where's Ruth chapter four? Are we going to finish? Yes. Let's do that right now. Okay, so Ruth chapter three ended with... Ruth going back to the home of Naomi after their plan, after she met him at the threshing floor, and now they're waiting because Boaz has agreed to try to make this thing work. So Naomi has said, all right, let's let's sit and wait. He's going to finish this before the day is up. So that is what we get to see go on now. We see Boaz take matters into his own hands and use the legal system to go ahead and get all of these things tied up We have two scenes in chapter four, both of which end at home, which do indeed seem to be the pattern of this book. Every scene ends up back in the house. We see Boaz now as the initiative taker. We had Naomi in the beginning, and then it went to Ruth, and then back to Naomi with the plan. And now it is Boaz's turn, and scene one takes place at the town gate. This is where we see the legal resolution of what this whole crisis is. We see that Boaz... He respects the law and he wants to do things properly. He is driven by the spirit of the law to help those in need, even though the law doesn't really specify what he has to do here. So he goes to the gate to take care of business. And the gate of the town really served as a protection point for the town, right? There are guards stationed there. It's a gate for in and out. But this is also a gathering place for official administrative business. It's sort of like your town hall. So here, Boaz is taking it out into public, official business. He's not playing any tricks here. He wants to use the legal process, and this is kind of how it plays out. I will go ahead and read. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witness this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. There's a lot going on there. 
And it seems like, yay, happy ending. It all worked out. It does. But there's some really interesting bits of information that I'd love to talk about and just point out before we close out this book. So we see Boaz. He goes to the gate. He's putting his plan into place. And all of the sudden, it just so happened. Remember how we feel about things just happening. Not coincidence. That is not what they would have believed in. It would be seen as God's providence. It just so happened to be that this other redeemer, the first one, the closer relative, walks by. And we see Boaz say, behold. It's like, oh, surprise. Like, hey, look who's here. He's probably heading out to the fields, probably heading out to the gate to go do his thing. He's got land also. Boaz addresses him in this name, Palmoni Almoni. And it doesn't really necessarily mean anything that we know of together, it's just kind of these rhyming words, like a wordplay, kind of how we would say hodgepodge or helter-skelter. Like maybe this is a new idiom. The words and the root from like palomi means maybe to be different or distinct, a certain one. It might suggest something along the lines like so-and-so, like, hey, Mr. So-and-so. Almoni, really not a whole lot clearer. The root, Almon, is it really, it's to be silent, to be dumb. It's the quiet one. So maybe <laughs> that's why, because we really don't hear much from him. This is why Boaz is saying, hey, Mr. So-and-so, you quiet one. Because he kind of comes into scripture and then goes away. We don't really see anything other of him. The phrase Peloni Almoni only occurs two other times in scripture. And that word has been used in those times, really to apply to an unnamed place. So this Goel, this Redeemer, he remains unnamed. And it seems intentional. He's here, and then he's gone. So we see Boaz. He gets, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come on over here. I need to talk to you. That happens. So then he gets the elders and ten witnesses that also just happen to be walking by. So now he's got his quorum met. So now he has this discussion with Mr. So-and-so, the Redeemer, about field allotment by Boaz. So Boaz brings up this point like, hey, let's talk about some land because it's pointing to Israel's theology of the land, that they're all tenants of Yahweh's land. They're renters. God is the landowner. This applies from nations to tribes, clans, and families. Like That's why the boundaries can kind of shift and change. We see this laid out in Leviticus 25. Family lands are to be maintained by family. So hence redemption and how that works and how we have this land proposal that is on the table by Boaz because apparently Naomi was actually selling the land to someone outside of the family. This conflicts with the view that maybe they were destitute and they had no wealth because now they're like, wait, we have this, we have this land. We could sell it to take care of us for the rest of our lives. Like we might have to take matters into our own hands. And the fact that she as a woman wasn't Like, we often think women can't sell it, but here we clearly see a purchase in place. It's in progress. Naomi was about to sell some land. We actually see Proverbs 15, 25 say, Yahweh tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. So it does seem to imply that women could have held land, um, especially as a widow. So it seems that Elimelech allowed someone else to manage his farm and his land when he left. So that when the girls actually come back, the management of the estate would have fallen back on them. So here they decide to sell to hopefully live off it. However, the deal is that you cannot sell land until after the harvest. 
the rules would say that the farmer is actually entitled to the abundance and the crop of that land. They get what's produced. So that's why it hasn't happened yet. And here we are heading into the end of harvest. And now Naomi's like, "Mm, okay, it's time to sell. So now this is the role of the kinsman redeemer steps in to keep the land in the family. So Boaz is trying to stop that purchase. And he tells Peloni Almoni, he's like, hey, I need to tell you something. Listen up the Hebrew phrases. I will open your ear. He's there to inform him to get his intention. Like, hey, pay attention. You need to know what's going on so that you realize you have to do something here. The land has to stay in the family. You're the redeemer. And Boaz is kind of challenging him to do something. And here's the deal. The redeemer, this Mr. So-and-so, he actually doesn't need to buy it. There's a sale going on where somebody was going to buy it from Naomi to give her money. But as the redeemer, he doesn't have to buy it. There's no money that has to change hands. He simply has to redeem it. Just claim it. Like, okay, yes. And then there it is. Part of his estate and his land. So Boaz presents this to him and an honorable response. He's like, yes, I will do it. It would have been advantageous for him to do it. His estate is now enlarged. He's, it's a good thing. He's like, why would I say no? But now Boaz introduces Ruth into the equation, kind of in a clever way. So how I read it to you from the ESV is the, a common reading. It says, on the day you claim the field from Naomi, Ruth the Moabite, the wife of the deceased, you must also claim. So what is interesting here is that there's some technicalities that maybe in the English reading we don't see clearly, which can make things seem a bit odd. But if we look, look at this text in Hebrew as it's written in the Ketev, so the Ketev is like this preserved Hebrew reading of the Old Testament. It's In the Hebrew, it would have read something closer to, on the day you claim the field from the hand of Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabite woman, I will claim the wife of the deceased to secure the name of the deceased on his hereditary estate. So with that in mind, what it appears Boaz is doing is like, okay, you have the land because that is the role of the redeemer. They deal with land and money and taking care of family members. They are not the levir. They do not have to marry a widow of the family. The levir, that's leveret marriage. That is something separate. The law actually has the kinsman, the goel or the redeemer as one entity and the levir someone who marries in leveret marriage as something else. It's two separate things, but man-made customs started putting them together a little bit. And Boaz is saying, well, hey, okay, you have now done the role of the Goel of the Redeemer. You did the land. Okay, once you do that, then I'm going to step in as Levere, and I'm going to take Ruth to continue the line of the family. And then all of the sudden, we see him, Mr. So-and-so, say, oh, Never mind, you do it. <laughs> you take the land. Now, this guy's response can actually seem a little short, fast, like, wait, what? Why did he change his mind? Did he really just not want to marry Ruth? So we actually see Mr. So-and-so in verse 6 say, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. What makes it so confusing and why Boaz's plan works is that if Boaz takes Ruth, which is what the Hebrew reading is saying here, that if Boaz takes Ruth as his wife and they have a son, because he said, so that I can continue the line of the deceased, the son would get the land, but not just the land that 
Naomi is now having redeemed by Mr. So-and-so because he would be the nearer redeemer. He would be getting all of the land of Peloni Almoni of Mr. So-and-so. So Mr. So-and-so's estate would grow. However, if Boaz and Ruth then marry and have a son, now he's entitled to all the land that this man has. And he doesn't want to risk it. So he's like, oh, oh, no, 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 never mind. You can just do it. Take Naomi's land, take Ruth. That way he has zero risk to what he already has in his estate. So he gives it to Boaz. He's like, never mind. I'm not going to risk this. Here's, here's my sandal. You know, the symbolic act in this pre-literate world. It's like he's passing the torch down to the next line. It's an ancient agreement or a contract sort of. So Boaz didn't have to do all of this. He's going far beyond the call of duty, but he has an agenda here of grace. Elimelech's estate is officially transferred to Boaz. He is no longer just a Goel. He is the Goel, the redeemer for this family. And Boaz gives a final speech to the witnesses. He's like, hey, those sitting and the elders, the 10 people present, and then all of those casual observers passing by, they were witnesses too. Their law in this culture is everyone's business. It's not just a formal legal profession, just for the elders, but this is for everybody. The whole town people would be like, oh no, I was there. I agree. I heard it. That's how it happened, right? So he turns and he gives this kind of formal legal speech to everybody there. He explains how he acquired the right to his relative's property and to Ruth from the hand of Naomi. The court proceedings now are superseding the sale that she had organized. That, oh, we're stopping what she had started. This is how it should work. The plan points that claiming Ruth really was Boaz's primary goal. He actually wasn't even worried about the land so much because he was willing to let Poloni Almoni take that as long as he ended up with Ruth so that he could take care of them. He would need Ruth to have a descendant to claim the land anyway, so there's no guarantee that he was going to be able to get it. It just, again, shows he really wasn't worried so much about that. Ruth was the widow of the deceased and would be how the land is passed on. Regardless, she is the key to the family line of this whole thing. So in verse 11 and 12, we see the witnesses accept their role, and then they turn around and they bless Boaz back. They bless Ruth, they bless Boaz, and they bless the household. What's really cool and rather extraordinary is that the Israelites, they bless and then request that the foreigner, Ruth, would have a place among the matriarchs of Israel, that of Rachel, who was barren at one point, as well as Leah, who increased Israel. She was like the mother of the 12 tribes. So for Ruth to be blessed and to be seen by the people, to be like, yes, may she be like one of them, is pretty incredible. They bless Boaz. May he act honorably. And he calls out the name of the deceased. And then they bless his household, the house of Perez. Now, if you're familiar with Perez at all, he was the ancestor of Elimelech and of Boaz. This is kind of the family line. But Perez comes out of, he's an ancestor of Judah. You could look up the story. It's one of those crazy stories. In Genesis 38, where Tamar, she tricks her father-in-law. She like dresses up as a prostitute and hides on the side, or it's like approaches him on the side of the road because he has not taken her into marriage like he promised he would. So she tricks him into it and becomes pregnant and becomes the mother of Judah, right? Like she bears two sons and that's where Judah comes from. Crazy story. 
Genesis 38. So they're like, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's kind of like a contrast. Boaz and Ruth are living out the highest ethical standards. They are living out Hesed, unlike Tamar and Judah. It's like the polar opposite, but in the same family line. This blessing that the townspeople, that the witnesses, that the elders give, it's prophetic. They are claiming that Yahweh was needed for Boaz and for Ruth to establish the name in the house of King David and the Messiah. We move into scene two, verses 13 to 17, in the home of Ruth and Boaz. So this is like the the conclusion, the climax of the whole story. Everything seems to be solved in five short verses. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here we actually only see the extras speak. We're kind of seeing a modified birth narrative. We're seeing a little bit of the story of Obed. In verse 13, we see nine months of personal history. Basic facts, all concluded, shrunk down. Boaz marries Ruth. They be, she becomes his wife. Again, another change in status for Ruth. The marriage is consummated, and the Lord blesses the marriage with a son. I mean, think about the climax of Ruth's social movement here in the story. From foreigner to a handmaid working in the field to a maid servant eligible for marriage and now a wife. We see God answer Naomi's prayer for Ruth and for Orpah that she had in the very beginning, that they would find peace in the home of their husband. And here we see it. And we see God acknowledged only the second time in this whole book that he gave her the gift of pregnancy and blessed her with it. We see the women, verse 14 and 15, respond and bless Naomi. They're super excited. They praise Yahweh for his kindness to Naomi, that she has not been left without a redeemer. But wait, wasn't? Wasn't Ruth the one that was redeemed by Boaz? What we're seeing here, though, that this son, this child, would sustain the family and take care of her forever. This is a very practical solution, not a legal one. Naomi's security and future and well-being are what's at mind here because now we see Naomi, she's experienced Yahweh's filling, right? There's this new hope. There's a new meaning in life. She is a grandmother, the women of the town, they pray a child, a blessing over the child. May his name be called in Israel. Like he's going to be the next Goel, the next redeemer. Then the women declare what an amazing gift Ruth has been for Naomi. That she has been better than seven sons. That her love, the Ahev, which is love in action for her mother-in-law, was so great. They applaud her said her righteousness to her mother-in-law. They are saying that Ruth was the compensation, the payment by God for Naomi. Naomi raises the grandson, becomes the guardian or the nanny. This is not adoption here. She wasn't really his nurse. She just helps raise him because honestly, she's not even the biological grandmother here. She does not necessarily have blood in the game, but they say that her bosom is filled once more. 
and the women of Bethlehem. It sounds weird because it says that the women named the boy. <laughs> well, more likely the women are affirming the name given by the parents, Boaz and Ruth, and they are like celebrating it and throwing it out for the whole community to know because it would appear then this is the only place that we actually see females and not even that, the mother of a child, name somebody else's child. So what we are really seeing is a community in celebrating this birth. This is not just about the immediate family, but this is about the whole community. It's a big celebration. A son was born to Naomi, they chant. Well, the son wasn't born to Naomi. She didn't have the boy. But because they see this tight bond between Naomi and Ruth, the women of Bethlehem, they see it as the same thing. They are like, they are one in the same. And the boy is named Obed, which means to serve or to be a servant. And what's weird about the name Obed is that it's a root of other names when it says a servant of who, like Obadiah means the servant of Yahweh. But here we just see Obed, servant. Verse 17, we see that he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. In the mind of the author, this is why this story of Ruth is so important. We see Obed has resolved Naomi and Ruth, their personal crisis by being the next new redeemer. But on a bigger scale, we see that Obed was a solution to the crisis in the line that Yahweh had chosen to produce the Messiah. Because we do not see Obed in any other stories in scripture. We see blessings through David called out all throughout Israel, but we don't actually see much more of Obed. Chapter four definitely has some theological significance, and we've talked about it in each chapter when it comes to divine providence. In chapter four, we see Yahweh's hand guiding le- the legal process. Things could have turned out very differently. This offers us hope, I believe, um, in spite of legal affairs. We also see that Yahweh's hand is evident in biological affairs in chapter four thirteen. It says that God granted conception and a birth of a son. Remember, Ruth had been married for 10 years and never got pregnant, but now she is. We see covenant righteousness. We have seen this again and again and again in the life of the characters of this book. We get to see Boaz being just a righteous, loyal, ethical man, and it is evident. He has unrestrained generosity to everyone. Ruth, her righteousness, she loved her mother-in-law and fulfilled horizontal righteousness in their relationship in a very real way. So the author is really painting amazing pictures for us through the characters of this book of what covenant righteousness looks like in the life of mankind. We get to see the transformation of Ruth from being a foreigner who followed Hamosh to a woman that Yahweh dealt with directly and granted fertility. That should give everyone hope to see where she started and to see where she ends up. She ends up in the genealogy of Messiah. God is a God of transformation. And we get to see God's faithfulness to his redemptive purpose. He is building a house through Ruth for David. This is just such a magnificent story of God's blessing on his people that takes place in this insignificant town of Bethlehem. It's only significant because of where David is born. It doesn't play a part in Jesus's ministry, but God is faithful to his promise and to his people. Ruth 4, 18 to 22 is our conclusion of the whole book. And it says that now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, 
Nishon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This was the point of the book for the author. To go back to prove and explain the line of David and why he's the rightful heir to the throne, he's painting David's Moabite connections of his past in the most positive light possible, filling this gap between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And we see this all kind of tied up neatly in this genealogy. Genealogies were a way of writing history, both segmented, kind of like the Table of Nations back in Genesis 10, and linear, right? We're seeing a family line. It's to help establish a claim. And the last person of that genealogy, it's named to perform the function. So the last person at the end of a genealogy is who it's really about and what the point is. And here we see it end with Jesse fathered David. So this is all about David. We see the same genealogy again in 1 Chronicles 2. David's the most important character in the Old Testament outside of Moses. He's the first king of Israel. He's the composer of the Psalms. He's the subject of many prophetic utterances. All messianic hopes are grounded in David. There's a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 that there never lack a descendant on the throne. Like This is important. That's why this is all written for David. Because what's really interesting, if you look at this genealogy, Elimelech and Malone, not in the genealogy. It's actually kind of shocking. It would appear as though they were forgotten. Nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible do we see them. We don't know their relationship to Salmon. Salmon, who's the father of Boaz, he's in there. And then Boaz is in there. Boaz is in the genealogy. He got all the attention, even though that the rules and the law would have had him fulfilling the line of the deceased of Malon, but instead he's in the genealogy. He gets all the attention. We see Boaz grafted in to the official lineage of Perez. Boaz was supposed to redeem the name of Malon, but instead the authentic bloodline of Boaz won out over a legal technicality. While I know genealogies aren't always the most exciting thing in scripture to read, it really does offer us a lot of information. It provides us a lot of markings of the providential hand of God like this genealogy here. The birth of Obed, it symbolizes kind of this convergence of personal piety and divine providence, right? Like Boaz, he's included here because like Adam to Enoch, right? Enoch is number seven from the beginning of genealogy and Enoch was called and described as someone who walked with God. Boaz was seventh in this generation and walked with God as well. He is included. There is a symbolic goal in genealogies. And just because I find it interesting, I don't know, maybe you will too. From Adam to Noah, Noah is the 10th in the genealogy, and he is the father of the post-flood world. From Noah to Abraham, it's another 10. So Abraham is 20th, and he is the father of the line of Israelites. Go another 10, it's Boaz. He's number 30 father of the line that would lead to the Messiah. This shows just again and again the markings of the providential hand of God and how he is in everything and plays out his plan every time. His plans cannot be thwarted. And in the dark days of the judges, the chosen line was preserved. It wasn't preserved by kings. It wasn't preserved by deliverers or by any sort of huge heroics, but by the good hand of God that rewards good, righteous, loyal people with a fullness that's beyond imagination.